Hi, and welcome to episode 83 of Oscar Podcast. I'm here with Craig Kennedy and Ryan Adams from awardsdaily.com, and my name is Sasha Stone. And today we're continuing our trek through the Oscar years, starting from the beginning. And now we're at the year 1930, and the Oscars were held in 1931, the fourth annual Academy Awards uh, were held in 1931. And we're going to talk a little bit about those awards and about various things that were surrounding the Oscars at the time. So we're, we're launching into um, the Academy voting as they vote today, which is each branch nominates and the entire branch votes for the winners. Uh, we're, we're still a few years away from them having fi- a solid five in each category. Right now it's still kind of helter-skelter in how they, they pick the number of nominees in each category. Um, they haven't really worked it out because films were just starting to really move into sound and silence were still quite strong. And in fact, this year was one of the years where they had a, a mini controversy about cinematography because the cinematography keeps winning for these epic silent movies that they make in other countries. And then they add in the sound later where the, the filmmakers making studio films um, with sound aren't winning the cinematography awards and they get kind of resentful about it. But we'll start off first with talking about the events surrounding the the Oscars at the time, so Prohibition and the Depression. That That's kind of what was happening in America um, right around the time of the fourth Academy Awards. And Charles Curtis, who was the vice president um, under Herbert Hoover, attended the Academy Awards and he actually gave a long rambling speech, which everybody said was one of the mo- most boring made for one of the most boring um, Oscars ever. Uh, the Oscars had moved to the Biltmore Hotel to have more room to accommodate their guests. And one of the famous stories that comes out of this year's Oscars is that one of the nominees for Best Actor, Jackie Cooper, who shot to fame with the film Skippy, which was also nominated, um, fell asleep on Murray Dressler's lap as oh. they were calling the winners, yeah. Isn't that funny, though? You said we were talking about last week, Will Hayes gave a speech before the Oscars in 1930, the year before, and there were people in the audience. You, you quoted a, a writer who said that it, he, so, you know, Hayes gave such a boring speech, and he ba- was basically there to kill everyone's creativity, to put a <laughs> lid on everyone's creativity. And Will Hayes was also, he was a, nothing but a, he had been a former postmaster general under, under President Harding. And he was, at the time, he was chairman of the Republican National Committee, Will Hayes was. So imagine that. It was mm. like if we put Rens Priebus in charge of deciding yeah. what movies America got to see <laughs> these days. It's right. just absurd that you would put someone that conservative in charge of, of movie morality. Well, they were quite conservative, in fact, because Louis B. Mayer actually had invited Charles Curtis to his home. He had this... He was very, you know, Mr. Bombast. He was a lot like Harvey Weinstein. He had to have all the important people at his house. That was the thing with him. And and this mm-hmm. guy was there. He was one of the guests. So he was a little embarrassed that his speech was so boring. And in fact, C- Curtis, because it was prohibition, he had to pretend not to notice everybody had brought flasks to the ceremony. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's the thing about prohibition, which I guess prohibition. We we were talking about just before we before we connected uh, to start the recording about when exactly prohibition began and ended. I think that prohibition, the Volstead Act, was 1919, I think, and then prohibition finally was repealed in 1933. But by that time, by the by the by the 
early 30s, everyone who wanted to drink certainly did not have any trouble finding a way to drink. And the reason that they did, and they were also, anyone who wanted to drink at the time was a lawbreaker, and you got your drinks from lawbreakers. And so that's why I believe that movies about gangsters were so popular at the time, because there was, there was a romance about it about mm. that that lifestyle that they, these the gangsters were the people who were enabling people to ha- to have fun in the midst of the depression right and it was also t- speaking of gangsters um Jimmy Cagney and Edward G Robinson were featured in two very popular films that year uh Jimmy Cagney actually had to address the fact that he that was the year he smashed the uh grapefruit into the woman's face and mm-hmm. and he had said something like you know I'm really getting sick of playing roles where I I just beat up women he didn't want to do that anymore. <laughs> he wanted to change his career, and I guess he kind of does, right, with his next few movies. But um, the Bill. What was the name of that actress? Oh, I forget. Sorry. That's okay. No, it's a good question to ask. I should yeah. know, but they say it in the book. I just and yeah, and Dvorak or something like that. I think maybe. Yeah. I can't remember. Um, the awards were held at the Biltmore Hotel on November tenth, nineteen thirty-one, and I don't know if you guys know this, but. You can go to the digitalcollections.oscars.org and you can find actually find the menu and the program from this fourth Academy Awards. And I'm looking at the menu right now and it says um, canapé georgette. I don't know what that is, but I assume it's a canapé of some sort. Olives and celery, tomato bouillon and Melba toast, stuffed boneless squab chicken, string beans florette, potatoes parisienne, Romaine with egg dressing. I guess that's an early form of Caesar salad. Coupe Academy, which I don't know what that is. <laughs> Petite four <laughs> and coffee. So that, that's the Everything's French. It's, it's all got these French names. It's so fancy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And they don't do sit-down dinners, the, obviously, at the Oscars anymore, needless to say. Yeah. Do they, at the, at the Golden Globes, is there a dinner beforehand? Yeah. The Golden Globes I is think, probably... Yeah, there is. Uh, yeah. A lot more what the Academy used to be like, you know, Academy Awards used to be like, um, than how the Ask Oscars that, are. That actress who got the grapefruit in the face in Public Enemy, her name was Mae Clark, and mm-hmm. apparently she was still being asked questions about that when she was 80 years old. And she, every time she would sit down with someone to do an interview with them, she said, please don't ask me about that grapefruit. I'm so <laughs> sick of talking about that grapefruit. <laughs> it followed her like for the next seven decades of her life. She had to answer questions about that. Apparently they told her they, they she has a real look, a genuine look of shock on her face when he does that. So people thought that maybe it was uh, partially improvised but it wasn't she knew he was going to do it but she didn't know it was going to be in the movie it was supposed to be a joke they told her it was going to be a joke for the benefit of the crew she didn't know it was going to make it into the final film so she was kind of relaxed about it and not being too serious about not taking it too seriously when it happened mm. but it was you know one of the most memorable things about that movie is the thing people talk about them a lot that's so funny um yeah it was a it was a um a crew change for, for Jimmy Cagney, but it, yes, it was also the time of, of, of gangster warfare. I mean, you think about what was happening up, you know, in New York, for instance, on the streets of New York. My grandmother used to talk about being in the Depression and once finding a dollar bill on the sidewalk and what a big deal that was for her and how, many, how, many, how much groceries she could buy was just one dollar. It was like a week's worth of groceries, you know. So it felt like a godsend and, and nobody had any money and... Uh, that's why a lot of the films like gangster movies and, and the film we're going to talk about with the Best Actress winner, Murray, Murray Dressler, why, Men and Bill, why those kind of movies uh, shot to the top of the box office of what people were looking for. Um, later in the 30s, they would start to look more for escapism. But early on, I think they were really sort of 
dwelling in, in these melodramas that were there was almost there was almost a sympathy for gangsters i think because so many people who were beginning to start you know the the depression itself didn't happen to hurt everyone like immediately even though the stock market crash was 1929 it was two or three years before people started to realize how really broke that they were and how desperate the situation was getting and how there was no end in sight and gangsters at the time were rebelling against that uh, government had failed government had failed the people and people were looking to people who had, who had found a way around that and gangsters were sort of heroic almost because they were rebelling against authority and finding a way to be individualistic and make make money on their own in their own way outside mm. of government approval you know and so like like i said not only was there the thing about prohibition where gangsters were enabling people to have the only fun that was available at the time but they were in the same way that westerns had outlaws but the cowboys the in, in westerns cowboys and were the heroes but in gangster movies the outlaws were the heroes um, Public Enemy and, and Little Caesar were both told from the point of view of the of the gangsters themselves, and Public Enemy especially had a certain genius in the way that it was structured. They start out showing the, um, J- Jimmy Cagney and his his compatriots, his buddies, when they were teenagers, and so they were almost like the little rascals at the beginning of the movie. They're they're just uh, cocky little adorable scamps, and then they grow up, and as they grow older, they their their crimes get more serious. But you become endeared to them because of the way the movie is set up. You see you see where they came from as kids, and so you have sympathy for them. And that flew for a couple of years, but. Pretty soon the production code clamped down on that because that was one of the major requirements of the production code was that you couldn't glorify crime. Mm. And so it was it was two or three years, though, before Hollywood decided that they that they had to start focusing on police and private eyes instead of the gangsters. And and uh, speaking of code, it was also the year that Marlena Dietrich was sort of inter- introduced to the um, to the American public. And one of the first things people noticed about her and her publicity shoots was she was wearing pants and she was dressing like a man. And it first it it, it influenced fashion. Women started dressing like that to look like Marlena Dietrich. But also, she was quoted as saying she couldn't stand hanging out with Hollywood. Um, people because she said the talk is so shallow and boring <laughs> these people are so boring but she was also openly bisexual as we know about her and there was there was a bit of a, a fuss i think about her because the the the, the hollywood code and cons- growing conservatism wanted to kind of keep that hidden about marlena dietrich mm-hmm. i know craig you have a lot to say about morocco it's probably morocco is probably my favorite year of 1931 my favorite movie of 1931. And part of the reason I like it is because it was so open about the gender fluidity of Marlene Dietrich's character. Um, we were talking about, earlier we were talking about the nightclub scene where she comes out dressed in a man's tuxedo and a top hat, and she's openly flirting with this dark-haired girl. And then she's openly flirting with Gary Cooper. And I mean, it looks, I mean, for all intents and purposes, she could be setting up a threesome. You know, it just looks like that's where things are headed because she is so unapologetically, it's not innuendo, it's not subtext, just right there on the surface. She's flirting with the girl and she's flirting with the guy. And just imagine that in 1930, people in rural America had never seen anything like that before. So, so, so not just so blatant, but so unapologetic. Well, and think about how 50, more than 50 years later, uh, Madonna literally co-opted that iconography, and it was still shocking to people. So, And this mm-hmm. was in 1931 rather than in the mid-'80s. So you can just imagine the, the impact that it would have had way, way back then. But, you know, it's, it's interesting because um, a lot of the same things we're saying about 
Marlena Dietrich, we said the same things about uh, Louise Brooks last week, and actually Marlena was up for that part in uh, Pandora's Box. It ended up going to Louise Brooks instead, and it would have been a totally different movie with her, but it's just interesting, these two uh, strong, ambiguously sexual female characters around, right around the same period of time. I think the story goes that Marlene Dietrich was actually actually sitting in Pap's office ready to sign the contract when when she, he got the telegram from Louise Brooks saying that she was coming to Germany. And he he felt like that Marlene Dietrich wasn't quite right for the part two because she was really aware of her sexuality. And Lulu, the character in Pandora's Box, is almost naive about her sexuality. There's an innocence. She doesn't mean to be she doesn't mean to be ruining the lives of men. But Marlene Dietrich had a very knowledgeable awareness of, of the power for sexuality which would have been a totally different movie as you say right it would have made a, made a completely different a different take but still still shocking and still interesting and still sexy and fun mm -hmm. and what at the time i think marlene dietrich had made the blue angel right with with uh who directed that same um, director oh, yeah, as uh, morocco and it was the same year actually they were both made in 1930 and the blue angel was um Emil Jannings, who was a German actor, very popular in the silent era, and the first winner of the uh, Best Actor Award um, for the Academy Awards. We didn't, I don't think we gave him his due, um, or the film that he was in, The Last Command, which was also directed by the same guy that did Blue Angel and Morocco, um, Joseph von Sternberg. Mm -hmm. but, um, uh, right, yeah. Uh, uh, but he... he um, was this amazing actor, but that was one of the, the consequences, I think, of the sound era. We've talked a little bit before about how films got stodgier because of the technical aspects. They were unable to have as fluid of a camera movement and all that kind of stuff simply because of the technical difficulties of doing sound. But another drawback was that we lost actors like Jannings because as a German speaker, he wasn't comfortable uh, acting in English, and he realized that his Hollywood career was probably limited, so he bailed back to to Germany, whereas in the silent era, they could act, and all you had to do was substitute a different language of title cards, in it, and it was sort of an, a more international thing. Mm -hmm. But uh, they were able to overcome that in some cases. With The Blue Angel, obviously, they, they filmed two different versions, but of course the German version's the, the better version than the English version. I'm glad you brought up Emil Johnny because I do agree with you. We gave him short shrift in the first um, podcast we did about that year, the first Oscars. We barely mentioned him, but he's really interesting because he was really well, well aware that his accent was going to be the end of his Hollywood career. He had already bailed, like you said, and gone back to Germany before the Oscars happened that year. And he sent a telegram to the Oscars, and you can just tell by the wording. I'll read it verbatim. He says, I therefore ask you to kindly hand me now already the statuette award to me. Oh, and I therefore ask you to kindly hand me now already the statuette award to me. That was his acceptance speech. And so he, his English was, was rocky. It was rough. And so he knew that. But he landed on his feet when he went back to Germany for a while. Like he said, he went right into making another classic, The Blue Angel. And But then, unfortunately, he made some bad decisions and he got tangled up with the Nazis. And he was a good buddy of, of uh, Hermann Goebbels. And he became propaganda minister in charge of censoring British movies that were coming to Germany before for the war. And his house was actually raided at the end of World War II by the Allied troops. And the very first thing is the very first thing Emil Jannings did is he runs to get his Oscar, waves the Oscar around, like, no, 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 I'm a good guy. See, I've got an Oscar. <laughs> so that was his that was his get out get out of jail free card. Was yeah. He becomes almost as sad of a figure as some of the characters that he played, including in Blue Angel and The Last Command, just kind of these these 
once great but brought down kind of sad characters. Mm-hmm. He was just well regarded all throughout the silent era as probably the greatest living actor, right? And everyone just it was famous. He was uh, you know you mentioned mentioned his name and greatest living actor in the same breath. But uh, the silent era, the end of the silent era, really ended that for him. And then he made some bad decisions in World War Two. It's a shame, really. It, like I said, it really I hadn't thought about that. The comparison between that and his character in the Blue Angel. That's probably why the Blue Angel was more overlooked, even though it would, would, have, been, would have been eligible for the Oscars in 1931. It was pretty rough. The, the story is the downfall of a guy who, had, who his lust for the for this uh, nightclub singer brings him down and ruins his life. And there is no happy ending there. Hmm. There's no, and there's no consequences for her either. She moves on, and she knows she's going to be doing that to men for the rest of her life. Um, Joseph von Sternberg directed Morocco, and he was one of three in that category that matched Best Picture. Weirdly, they had five directing nominees that year and five Best Picture, although I don't think it was policy at the time yet. But um, the only three that matched both directing and picture were Skippy, Cimarron, and The Front Page. And Joseph von Sternberg and Clarence Brown were both um, directing nominees without um, winning without a, a corresponding Best Picture um, nomination, but does somebody want to talk about Joseph von Sternberg? Von Sternberg's an interesting guy. He, he emigrated from Austria when he was 14 and grew up in New York, um, but his, his past is a little bit shady. There's some question about whether he sort of played up his, his the von and his name, whether he really was a von, as in uh, whether he was aristocratic or if he just added that for sort of exotic appeal. But... Um, he the the five films that he made with Marlena Dietrich are probably the five of the best films that he made and and five of the best films that she made and they're sort of uh, in, not interchangeable but you can't really separate them and and they they both sort of built that image of hers together and he had a lot to do with it just the way that he photographed her with the soft lighting and the soft focus and it was. Uh, the, the, there, there. You, you, you can't really separate them. And I, I would, and he apparently was completely fascinated with her. And I think they had an on again, off again romance that ended up off. Um, and so it, it's actually kind of similar to the character that Eric von Stroheim plays in Sunset Boulevard, because um, mm-hmm. he was. He, uh, uh, it, it's an it's an interesting story. I would encourage anybody who is fascinated with old Hollywood and doesn't know their story to to go back and read about it and to check out the five films that they made together. We'll be able to talk about von, von Sternberg and Dietrich for the next three or four episodes because they continue to make movies together. And like you said, not only were the five films they made together von Sternberg's best movies and Dietrich's best movies, they were also the best movies of the early 30s, I think, for me. Mm-hmm. They were unsurpassed visually. They're so dense and thick with atmosphere visually in the sets design and the cinematography and, like you said, the way he photographed her. And the, 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 the uh, rapport they had with each other uh, like you said, you can never prove whether they had an actual affair or not, but his wife certainly thought they did. She she uh, confronted him one time and said, why don't you just marry her? And von Sturberg reportedly <laughs> said to her, he said, he said, marry her. Are you kidding? I would rather be trapped in a phone booth with a frightened cobra. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so he was really well aware of her sexual power, too. He was fascinated by her and enthralled by her, but he also knew to keep his distance. I hope in these podcasts we can somehow 
somehow recreate what the atmosphere of the of the era was, though, in the way that we describe the movies that we are, care a lot about, and the movies that we have a lot of affection for. I mean, just take for instance, we, we're three years into the sound era, mm-hmm. and suddenly we have all these gangster movies where people, for the very first time all across America, are hearing these slangy urban. Mm-hmm ethnic accents that they have never been exposed to before. They're hearing the rat-a-tat-tat of Tommy guns and pistols shots and the squeal of tires. Think how just absolutely incredible that must have been to sit in a theater and hear that for the first time that had never been heard before. Yeah. And just how, how what, the, the, it must have just knocked, knocked people back in their seats in the theaters to see that kind of thing and to hear it, you know, to hear the, to hear the people talking out of the side of their mouth, you know, where before they'd only had been able to read subtitles, you could finally hear these accents and hear the way Jimmy Cagney and, and Edward G. Robinson has sounded, you know, it's amazing. And you can see yeah, how, oh, go ahead. sorry, go ahead. Oh, I'll, I'll, it's, go ahead. it's different for us because we grew up with movies pretty much as they are. Where it's it's hard to it, it's easy to forget that movies really weren't that old still in 1931, 1930, 1931. I mean, they'd been around for 30 years technically, but they weren't like a huge thing for that long. And they and they suddenly just changed. And there's this whole new element that Ryan's talking about that that wasn't previously a part of that. And how eye-opening, no pun intended, that having having sound must have really been. Hmm. And people. You can see why, you can see why the conservatives were getting so involved, and that politics was getting so involved in the movies because they were starting to realize the power of cinema, and how it could change people's viewpoint of of themselves, their place in the world, what they think of the country, what they think of the big city. You know, um, it just seems like the the potential for corruption was so high, and the fear would have just been rising in the the religious you know, conservative parts of the country, you can imagine once these movies started to play what they would think of it. And and, a, mm-hmm. and a, to a large degree, I think it helped to kind of, re, you know, reflexively bend certain areas towards a more conservative way of life, you know, in opposition to what they were seeing in the movies. People were really afraid of the influence that the power of the cinema was going to have on society where people had never been exposed to this kind of thing before. Anybody with a nickel or a dime could go to the theaters and mm-hmm. see the glamorous life of, 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 of crime, really, of gangsters and crime, and see the sexual mores that were commonplace in Hollywood but that weren't hadn't spread yet across the country. To see that this kind of thing was happening and was available, they were afraid it was going to put the idea into people's heads, conservatives were, especially teenagers, because there was no, there was no age restrictions. Anybody with, with a with a nickel could go to the movie, no matter what, how old you were, right? And so they were really worried about the effect it was going to have on America's youth to be exposed to that kind of thing. So even though the production code was written in 1930, then the studios pretty much shrugged it off and ridiculed it for several years. I think in 1934, the Catholic bishops finally got together and they formed what was called the League of Decency. I mean, what a name, right? The League of Decency. And they threatened Hollywood that they would, and every Sunday that they would tell people that if they went to see these movies, that it was tantamount to doing the sin themselves. Hmm. That if you went to see these kind of movies, you'd be sinning and you could go to hell for it. And so that Hollywood could not afford to lose that much of a segment of the audience. Yeah. You know, so they had to really start abiding by the production code then. My grandmother told me that when she was a little girl, she lived in a really small rural town. And the only way that they could see a a movie was to go to the Catholic um, school. There was a Catholic church and there was a Catholic school attached to the church and then there was the auditorium in the Catholic school and every weekend the Catholic school would show movies. And hmm. so of course the Catholic church is not going to show movies that with Marlene Dietrich and gangsters, right? 
And so if those were the ways that people were able to see movies at the time, that Hollywood had to clean up as a act. Yeah. It's important to note, though, that even though Hollywood sort of ignored the Hayes Code, it's important that Hollywood, that the Hayes Code came from Hollywood. They were the ones that that made it up. It wasn't an it, it wasn't an external government agency. It was in fact an attempt to avoid external government screwing with that they came up with the Hayes Code. And I think that Hollywood and it, and it happened again 30, 40 years later with the MPAA. It was the same attempt to keep government out of the business of movie censorship. Um, but I think Hollywood, whether they were liberal or conservative or not, they were paranoid because it, movies always had this the stigma of being sort of a low rent entertainment, and I think they were they were right. early, especially early on, they were constantly fighting against this idea that it was that it that it was a low a low form of art. Right. Mm -hmm. And speaking of that, it's sort of you can feel the three way pull in the Oscars that year and any year really, which was the between the epics that the Academy liked to reward. That's Cimarron. Cimarron was the first Western to win Best Picture, and they wouldn't have another Western to win Best Picture until, uh, is it Unforgiven or Dances with Wolves? Dances with Wolves. Dances with Wolves, mm. 59 years later, and then and then Unforgiven won. Um, but they also had the sort of the international influence, which was the more intellectual bent. And then they had the, the popular entertainment, which was making shitloads of money, and that would be Skippy. Skippy was such a huge phenomenon that they named the peanut butter after it. <laughs> no and, kidding. Yeah, and it launched Jackie Co Cooper's career, obviously. It was directed by his uncle, Norman Tarrog, who, who won Best Director. So Cimarron and Skippy were one of the years that, that they split, that the Academy split, um, that we tend to kind of go back to. There are only a few of them in history where the picture and director split and he did not take it well apparently like they usually don't he didn't he said well you know i don't understand how this movie could have won three oscars and and you know and i didn't win but he was nominated at least so um but skippy but the biggest i want to talk about marie dressler because her story is really interesting and um the men and bill was a film that she starred in and the reason that she was in the movie at all was because she started out she came from ontario and she started out as a, uh, she's kind of a, they call her like a big homely woman, not attractive, big sort of, um, but funny. And so she started out in theater and she would work really hard. She'd send half of her money, which was like six to $8 a week back to her parents to help support them. Um, and she worked in stage. She started to do some films and then around 1920s, she had to quit. Her, the work dried up. She didn't have any, no more jobs came her way, uh, maybe because of the way she looked or for whatever reason. And she decided to retire. She announced she was retiring. Well, she had actually struck up a friendship with Frances Marion, um, which, who may or may not have been her lover. Apparently, Marie Dressler was, uh, a les you know, was either bisexual or lesbian and supposedly had an affair with Greta Garbo at one point. Um, she did have a husband. She was married twice, no kids. Um, anyway, she had struck up a friendship with Frances Marion, who was one of the most famous um, screenwriters back then, female. Uh, she won two Oscars, I think was nominated three times, as one of the most famous early pioneers for women writers. They didn't have the same stigma back then that they have now against women writers. She was very much in the club. She was a hired studio writer. Who, she wrote like a hundred scripts or something like that. She was good friends with Marie Dressler. And when 
it got around town that that uh, Marie Dressler was basically penniless and living in an apartment with a roommate and, and looking at ads to become a maid or a nanny for a family. Uh, Frances Marion actually wrote, Min, co-wrote Min and Bill for her to bring her back into the business and give her a career. And it was such a huge hit. It was such a, and it wasn't just that. She had started another movie and, and she was, she became so famous that she was on the cover of Time magazine and her movie was number one that year. And that was the 1930s by a few years later, she would be dead of cancer. Just oh. such a sad story. She died at 65 and her. I've got her, to see that movie. I really want to see that movie now. Well, it's really funny, actually, Men and Bill. It's really strange. It's it's about a woman. Uh, who, you know, poor, this is why I think it was so popular with people because they were all struggling so hard. Everybody, you know, and, and it's about a woman who lives on a dock with this total ne'er do well husband, and there's this extended like two minute scene where she's just <laughs> she's just beating him up, and at one point she takes an axe and she starts going after him with the axe and she's doing like the Jack Nicholson thing in The Shining and like hammer you know <laughs> axing a door down and she. Just pounding him and beating him and pounding him and beating him and he keeps saying man come on man come on man and then he he finally he passes out with a net over his face and she goes oh bill did i hurt you <laughs> it's so funny but um but anyway it's about a woman who raises the, the baby of a prostitute who gets left on her doorstep basically and she raises this young girl this was such a popular theme of old movies which was like trot upon mothers and they're like their well-to-do daughters, but um, she raised her. She had bad manners, so she sent her. She saved all her money and sent her off to an expensive boarding school. And she came back with manners and beauty. And she married a rich man. And all of her life, men had been trying to hide her real mother from her. And her real mother shows up and sees that her daughter's rich and wants to interfere in her life. And so men shoots her. And then the last scene is she sees she's watching her daughter go off and be happy with her new husband. And she chooses not to show herself to the to the daughter because she knows she's committed a crime and she doesn't want to make her life miserable. And so the last shot is just her like saying goodbye to Bill and being taken away by the cops. Wow. So and you can see why she won Best Actress. It was an incredible part. But more than that, it was sort of this idea of the Oscar story. The Oscar story was born, you know, because she her success story you know that late breaking success having retired in the 1920s and then coming back so um successfully with not just doing well in sound movies because her voice was great she was really funny and she was good on film but to have these box office hits you know in her late 50s and early 60s and then just to immediately get cancer like that she was quite um i'll read you the guys the part if, if you don't mind from the inside oscar the last Thing that gets said once she's once she wins her Oscar, it says, there was no dissent over the selection of Marie Dressler for Best Actress. Yet for the winner, the victory proved to be bittersweet, as Dressler recalled in a second bio- autobiography. Her first um, her first autobiography was called uh, Tales of an Ugly Duckling, I think, or something like that. Um, mm. She lay in bed the morning after the awards, reading the paper, when she came across a small obituary for an obscure actress who had committed suicide and was to be buried in a pauper's grave. The actress had been one of Dressler's friends when she was just starting her career. I looked back along the highway of the years, Dressler wrote, dark, pretty little Jane and big, homely Marie Dressler, dancing together in the pony ballet of third-rate musical comedy in Kansas City 40-odd years ago. Jane on Broadway, while Marie was still 
stalking the provinces, and now Jane was dead at 60, a self-confessed failure, and I, Murray Dressler, was alive, with the Academy Award of last night standing within reach of my hand. I slipped the golden figure into a bureau drawer. I cannot bear to look at it just now. Oh, my gosh. Heartbreaking. (laughs) I know. Unbelievable. What a life she had. You know, she was born in 1868, three years after the Civil War. Her very first movie was in 1914 with Charlie Chaplin. It was called Tilly's Punctured Romance. She was already 45 years old in in 1914. And then, like you said, to have her career go into decline and have a comeback and win the Oscar in 1930. And then for her life to suddenly have another tragic ending. Just amazing. And then I've only just recently found out what you said earlier, that she was rumored and pretty well documented now that she had a lesbian uh, or bisexual lifestyle that was had to be well known at the time because there was a circle of lesbians at the time in Hollywood that included Tallulah Bankhead and Marlene Dietrich and Greta Garbo and Marie Dressler and even Hattie McDaniel. There's rumor that Tallulah Bankhead and Hattie McDaniel had an affair together. Yeah. You know, and so it had to have been well known, but it was it was accepted. And but that was another reason that Hollywood was so fearful about how about word getting around all across America about the loose morals of Hollywood and why they wanted why they didn't want all this to be they wanted to keep it under wraps because they were afraid it would be career ruining not only would it be bad for business for individual movies but it would ruin careers they were afraid yeah um it says that she died on July 28th 1934 she died of cancer uh she left an estate worth $310,000 and left it to her sister Bonita she left a 1931 automobile and $35,000 in her in her will to her maid of 20 years, Mamie Cox, and 15000 to Cox's husband, Jerry, who had served as Dressler's butler for four years. The two used the funds to open the Coconut Grove Nightclub in Savannah, Georgia in 1936, named after the nightclub in Los Angeles. It's very cute. There's also a house in... Um, Coburg, Ontario, known as the Marie Dressler House, and is open to the public. Um, it was converted into a restaurant in 1937 and operated as a restaurant until 1989 when it was damaged by fire. But it never reopened again as a restaurant. So, But I just, that's such a moving story to me, Marie Dressler's life. And the fact that she was helped along by uh, Frances Marion, who was such a successful yet kind of relatively unknown early woman writing pioneer. And it just, it's sort of a woman, women helping women story that I think is really fascinating. And I also love this idea of, of humble Murray Dressler, you know, spending the Academy Awards with Jackie Cooper sleeping on her lap. I think it's just such a sweet image of the two of them. It is. It's adorable. I see. I didn't even, I didn't know all of this stuff we've been talking about, even the stuff that I kind of mentioned, I have just now, looked up just recently you know so this is this is all pretty much news to me about her life i mm. i'd seen her before I, I knew her i knew what she looked like but i had never i've never seen any of her movies i have to make a point now of trying to seek them out check out for sure check out tilly's punctured romance it's a really easy to find um charles chaplin feature that actually it was before charles chaplin was uh directing his own stuff it was one of his old max senate comedies from 1914 but she's great in that mm. but then also check out um uh, uh, Dinner at Eight from 1933 mm. was one of her last films. It was a George, oh, right. George Cukor film with Gene Harlow and a couple of the Barry Moores and Wallace Beery, and she's hilarious in it. I mean, she mm-hmm. and it, actually that was also written by Frances Marion. Um, and right. it just uh, you can see why she was such a success in the sound era in a way that she wasn't in 
in silence because just her voice and her delivery and her manner really come through with sound in a way that that it doesn't quite come across in the Mm. silent era i forgot that i had seen dinner at eight that's the one movie marie dressler movie that i have seen and i know what you mean she just she has she's brassy i mean that that she's the epitome of brassy Right, yeah. and, and, just, and and I think there's been a million different actresses that have come along since then that are kind of playing that same type, sort of the older, maybe a little bit overweight, not necessarily attractive, but super funny and just like really good singers. Yeah, mm-hmm. she actually had tried to sell a script at one point with two other writers and that failed to sell because everybody said that, that kids want young people in movies, they don't want old people. And I think she just felt, like you say, just sort of squeezed out in that era of like flappers and, you know, pretty young skinny girls. And um, it really took someone with, with I think, intelligence and, and a big picture wisdom about what people would go see at the movies to bring her back and to find what a, uh, what a talent she was. Actually, I recommend everybody look up the Tur- Turner Classic Movies has YouTube clips from Min and Bill, and there's some really wonderful ones. Definitely check out clip number two, which is the extended fight scene where, where she just goes after Wallace Beery. This is fantastic. And actually, those two parts were written specifically for those two actors. Mm. Yeah. At Turner Classic Movies, thank God for them, right? Because not only do they have the classics like that that you can't find anywhere else, but they have an entire series of movies about the, the pre-code films that we talk, we'll be talking about for the next couple of weeks. It's called Forbidden Hollywood, I think, um, where you could buy a DVD and there's like double-sided DVD, two movies on the same disc, you know? And they have a lot of these classics that, that were previously just impossible to find, but in the past five or ten years, they're finally available again for people mm-hmm. to find out the how really openly wild and rowdy movies were in the early 30s. Yeah. Um, what's his name? Sorry, not what's. I'll never forget old what's his name. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, Lewis Milestone. This was his, he won, he was nominated two years in a row for Best Picture and Best Director, which is pretty impressive. Um, I'm not sure how many other people in history have done that, but it's, it's sort of a rare feat to have both nominations mm-hmm. back to back. He directed... He directed All Quiet on the Western Front, right? Yep. Yes. Uh-huh, yeah. Another thing about uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, you know, that had been Universal Pictures. It was the only studio that had never been nominated for an Oscar. And and Carl Lamley was determined that he was going to get his studio the respect that it, he felt like it deserved. It was uh, Universal Universal Pictures. And so he's, he, he bet the farm on All Quiet on the Western Front. And it, it was paid off for him. It made a lot of money and it, and it won him some Oscars and everything. But after that, he decided that it just wasn't worth the stress and worth the trouble. So the very next year, what did Universal focus on? They, they invented the horror film. They invented uh, Dracula and Frankenstein and that they they that was their specialty then for years and years after that and Universal was not nominated then Universal then did not win another best picture Oscar until the sting until it was like 50 years later they finally won another best picture Oscar um Maybe you know something about this Ryan it says um, talking about this year's cinematography winner it says uh, Wesley Ruggles, uh, what says um, after the director complained about Cimarron, um, I guess that's Wesley Ruggles. It says Ruggles was a lonely voice compared to the collective cry from the cinematographers who felt it wasn't fair for Hollywood studio movies to compete for the award with silent films shot in exotic locations. The branch quickly rewrote the requirements for t- cinematography award to read. 
the best achievement in cinematography of a black and white picture photographed in America under normal production conditions. <laughs> wow, it's, it's pretty a, specific in order to just eliminate all other commerce, right? It said taboos winner Floyd Crosby couldn't have cared less about the controversy. The cinematography photographed documentaries for the next two decades, moving to commercial features with High Noon in 1952 and later such drive-in favorites as Attack of the Crab Monsters and How to Stuff a Wild Bikini. <laughs> <laughs> he also <laughs> raised a son, rock musician David Crosby. No kidding. Wow. Yeah. That's something. Yeah, but we talk about, even recently, we've talked about the fact that cinematography is sometimes an award for best po picture postcard movie. You know, the movies that have the pretty locations yeah. are very often the movies that still win for best cinematography. Right. And especially back then in the silent era, if you would go to an exotic location that nobody had ever seen before, it was just so stunning to see that on the big screen that that overwhelmed people to the, uh, to the extent that they didn't even pay attention to the lighting or the studio effects of the cinematography, but they just wanted to see pretty pictures. Yeah. And it's not that Taboo was not deserving because it was another film directed by F.W. Murnau who, you know, won for Sunrise and who was a, made every movie he made was just visually stunningly beautiful. Mm. And so it, ta Taboo was absolutely deserved the Oscar, I think, that year. But it's interesting that they changed the rules in order to eliminate that kind of competition. There's always going to be that ongoing conflict between foreigners and Americans you know, vis-a-vis -vis the Academy Awards, because especially in the early days, they were so studio-oriented, even though so many of these guys are like immigrants, foreign immigrants, so Frank, Frank Capra, people like that. They're not American-born directors, um, but they're, they're building movies in the studio system, and that seemed like that's where their loyalties lied. Not so much where the people came from, but where films were shot, where the money goes. Uh, you know, fortifying and building up the American film industry seemed of utmost importance, and, and it'll all come to a head when, when Hamlet wins Best Picture. <laughs> That's when things mm -hmm. really, really get bad. But I just want to read this paragraph about the aftermath of the fourth Academy Awards. It says, No matter how important the names on Louis B. Mayer's guest list, the trade journals wrote the entire evening off as a bore. Daily Variety called the affair a long-winded, verbose, political, and dull evening of a nature which will repel many a Hollywoodian next year, unless memories dim and time makes them forget. And the guest of honor, Vice President Charles Curtis, received the worst reviews of all. That dull Republican oratory started dishes to rattling, silver to clinking, and conversation to humming, recalled the Hollywood Herald. While columnist Homer Croy wrote, Even if I live to be as old as Redwood, I'll never forget that speech, which to me is the nadir of all banquet speeches. George S. Kaufman could have written a play around it. Mm. Wow. So there you go. <laughs> I think at the time, people, even people in Hollywood must have been pretty aware of the fact that that for some reason the Oscars were already settling into this this routine where they would they were so eager to be respectable that they would. Uh, uh, anoint a movie like Cimarron, which is widely regarded now as one of the worst Best Picture winners of all time. Whenever you see a, a ranking of a list of best, best Picture winners, Cimarron is always like down there in the bottom five. People who've tried to watch that movie, and I have tried. Said Craig, you said you watched it a couple of, several years ago, and haven't don't remember much about it. It's not memorable at all. It has not aged well, so I can't even imagine what it was like to see that win Best Picture in 1931 up against movies like Morocco and Public Enemy and Little Caesar and. And, and uh, even movies that have become just absolutely uh, uh, um, revered classics like like uh, Frankenstein and Dracula were completely overlooked in favor of a movie that's a, just a really stale old Western. 
Well, I wouldn't totally write it off as just that. If you look at the reviews at the time, it was really well regarded when it came out. I don't think anybody was terribly surprised when it won back then. I think that okay. we look back now and we look at the more forward-thinking movies that were ahead of their time, and, and we sort of embrace those. But Hollywood hadn't really caught up with those yet. So I think it. I think it's okay. I mean, it's not... It's not I think mo the only reason most people even watch it now is because it was the winner of the Academy Award, and I think it it um, it's a little unfair to judge it just on that. But mm -hmm. it, it, you're right, though it is it is easily one of the the one of the duller, uh, stodgier um, winners. And to me, it's sort of it's sad that uh, one of the most popular genres in in Hollywood filmmaking, which is the western. Uh, until Unforgiven came along, the only two examples of it winning Best Picture, I think, are kind of not very good movies, which is Dances with Wolves and, and Cimarron. I know people would argue with me yeah. over Dances with Wolves, but um, it just it's just odd that such a an, a, uh, an enormously popular genre that has made so many great movies has never really been recognized except in, in so, somewhat negative cases. Not by the Oscar, at least. Although it, right. they, Westerns never really had trouble being nominated, and, and directors like John Ford and other uh, directors who are famous for their Westerns were certainly well-respected at the time. And it's interesting that Westerns, I mean, Westerns are a genre, just like we talk about the way that, that the Academy overlooks genres like science fiction and, and horror right. films. And, but Western, Westerns were able to escape that stigma. And I think that the reason that they did is because they were so good at glorifying the, um, the American ideals of, of good guys always winning. You know, they're the, they were definitely the black hat, white hat kind of stories. And, and they exemplified the sort of frontier spirit that Americans wanted to be proud of, much more so than, say, gangster movies did, you know? Oh, well, I just have to read you guys one more thing, and this is going to forever change the way you watch Skippy. If you decide to watch Skippy, and it's cute little Jackie Cooper, but it says the violence was happening off screen at Paramount where director Norman Taurog was terrorizing his nephew, 10-year-old Jackie Cooper, by telling him if he didn't cry for a scene, the director would be forced to shoot Jackie's dog. When Cooper began to... Oh my God. <laughs> when Jeez. Cooper began to bawl, the camera started rolling and Turog had another heartwarming scene for Skippy. <laughs> a film yeah, based so on it's a like child abuse. We're seeing a filmed, filmed record of child abuse. <laughs> so you never be able to watch Skippy and not think, oh my God, <laughs> no. his dog is going to get That makes me appreciate it even more. <laughs> and then Poor he falls asleep guy. at the Oscars with his head in the lap of a lesbian. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> what a year he had. <laughs> <laughs> we should say that there is if you go read wikipedia about um marie dressler you will find that there is conflicting information about her being a lesbian some people say she was some mm -hmm. people say she wasn't it does it there is i mean it's just a lot of that right. stuff couldn't really be set out in the open so it had to mm -hmm. just be suggested and revealed and there are very few marlena dietrichs who were just so out in the open about it you know yeah and i think too we also we very often overlook the fact that bisexuality is a thing, and and right. people could easily have a life where they could they could have a relationship and have children and a and a husband and wife situation and still be bisexual, and that's really well known now. But it probably wasn't very well understood at the time back then. Right. You were either one or the other, and so but yeah, I think the problem with redresser was bisexual, and just like Marlene Dietrich and Garbo were. Hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think they that, just didn't. They didn't. They didn't restrict themselves. And I think Marlene Dietrich has some famous quote where she said, "In Germany, we don't, we don't, we don't worry about gender." <laughs> right. Well, they've always been less uptight than Americans in Europe, yeah. you know, for goodness sake. all the uptight people left Europe to form America. That's right. So we're, Puritans. <laughs> we're founded on Puritanism. We, we dress the Indians, for God's sake. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're still being punished. <laughs> but is, what you said, Sasha, it's really interesting that there were Hollywood at the time was made up so much of immigrant talent who had, who had been – educated or at least had the European mentality that they brought with them to Hollywood and even people like Capra who sort of wrapped himself in the flag in order to to blend into America he still had a certain edge to him that gives those movies that at the time something that movies mm. that are made by just um, native-born Americans didn't have right native-born Americans today are obviously very different cut from a different cloth than Americans then because either they were immigrants or they were children of immigrants and their lives were hard. They came out of poverty, a lot of them. And, you know, you'd look at someone like Judd Apatow or, you know, the kids are kind of born, you know, in, a, in leading fairly privileged lives. They're making different kinds of movies than people made back then to a different sort of um, audience. But I do want to say one thing remains consistent about then and now, and that is movies you know, that made money were important to the Academy. Actually, the Academy doesn't care about that anymore because they're so isolated. But back then, you know, the picture that made the most money, it's going to be an Academy Award winner. You know, it mattered mm -hmm. that it made money. Right. And the reason that they made money was because middle-class people were, like you say, finding the movies interesting enough to spend money to get away from their miserable lives. Well, that's sort of true today. It's just that we're, we really are of two minds in Hollywood. We're there's the there's sort of the intellectual film critics idea of, of what makes good movies and then there's the audience driven fair that, that nobody really likes to talk about but you know I saw Jurassic World with Emma and this is a movie starring all white people okay and the entire theater was filled with Hispanics it was like mm. Hispanic working class families you know they're the ones paying the money to go see the movies and it, it reminds me kind of of the 30s in a way because they're hardworking people, you know, who just want to escape their lives for a little while and watch a funny, weird, creepy dinosaur movie, you know, mm -hmm. and not have to get into too heavy of stuff. Right. So that's sort of, you know, you can see a little bit of the strains then of that. And a movie, um, and they liked movies that were overwhelmingly, impressively visual in ways that, and let me turn my phone down here. Um, sorry about that. Um, then that's one thing I can say in defense of Cimarron. It was epic. It right. was it was the first really epic Western that was just epic in scope and size and visually astounding looking for the time. And people liked to see that. And mm. also Hollywood knew that it was an expensive movie to make. They had they had really put a lot of money into it. And that's the kind of movie that they wanted to see pay off and be uh, rewarded at the time. As you say, nowadays it's not so important because they Hollywood has lots of ways to make money outside of the Oscars. Right. Exactly. And they don't think of it that way. The, the Academy voters are very ins insular and, and kind of removed from real life. And back then they were to a degree. But if you have Marie Dressler, who's like literally minutes away from poverty, suddenly mm -hmm. winning an Oscar and being on the cover of Time, that that's a whole different reality than the kind of thing we see now mm -hmm. with Hollywood. Um, Another, I, I, I'm, I'm really impressed to hear and to learn about Marie Dressler. I'd also like to, uh, to mention another um, woman that was nominated for Best Actress that year, 
for this, uh, you know, she won the year before it was uh, Norma Shearer, who I yeah. spent a lot of time talking about how impressed I was with her about being so forward thinking. She was Irving Thalberg's wife, and she really was interested in, in expanding um, the realm of what women were allowed to do and be in movies as far as being free spirits, um, sexually, especially sexually adventurous. The movie that she made in 1931 was in fact called a free soul. The synopsis, the simple synopsis that it gives the IMDB has is an alcoholic lawyer who successfully defended a notorious gambler on a murder charge objects when his free spirited daughter becomes romantically involved with the gangster. So no. that's complicated, you know, but they, and the gangster who, the guy who played the gangster was a young Clark Gable. This is like almost a full oh, decade no. before Gone with the Wind. And he was like pretty much a young stud at the time. I wish I could find, I may be able to lay my hands on the quote about what um, Norma Shearer says about him. Uh, I'll, I'll look it up in a minute. Um, but anyway, in the movie, when she first um, sees Clark Gable, she literally, her jaw drops. And it's obviously all she cares about is just she wants, uh, she has a lustful interest in him. He's, he asks her later in the movie, um, why don't you want to get married? And she laughs in his face. She doesn't want to marry him. She just wants him for the D. You know, she just wants, she's, all she cares about is the sex. And at the time, that's another thing that must have been astonishing to people across the country to see. This wasn't a prostitute or a woman of low, of ill repute or a, um, um, bad morals or something. She was the daughter of a lawyer. She was a high society girl. And really all that she's interested in, in the movie is sex. She just wants to be, she just is interested in this gangster because he's a good looking sex partner. Mm. And the movie that she'd made between, uh, the divorcee, divorcee and, and, uh, free soul was called, um, um, something about, give us a kiss or something. I forget the name of it. Damn it. Um, but it, that in that movie, she, she goes on a, basically a sex tour of Europe. She, she, she's, oh she's another high society girl who goes to Europe and just pursues sex the whole time she's there. She has a line in that movie where she says, I am wallowing in the orgy and I love it. <laughs> I mean, imagine saying that in 1930 and, and all, you know, you don't even hear people, a, a woman in, in the movies these days say something like that. No, no, that not would be, that would be shocking punished. even nowadays. She would have to get punished somehow. Oh, yeah, exactly. exactly. And that's another thing. The, the women who were sexually adventurous in the early 1930s didn't, ha didn't suffer retribution or, or any um, um, punishment. I mean, there are no consequences. And that was a really wonderful thing. It, it's too bad that they clamped down on that. Well, it's interesting. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, it's in sorry to interrupt you. Um, it's interesting that... We can watch, we'll be watching as we go through the 30s and the 40s and the 50s to watch when it was that women just really started to lose power in Hollywood. Because back here, when we're talking in the 30s, they had a lot of it. And leading up to mm -hmm. the 40s, in the 40s, women ruled in the uh, studio system, mm -hmm. you know. And a lot of that is you're talking about power. And I imagine that one of the ways that women's power is diminished is, is that, through sexuality, through their sexuality. So I'd be curious mm -hmm. to see how, how that shapes up as the years wear on. Well, it's an interesting thing about that going into the 1940s, we begin to have film noir. And so you, the women who were powerful, the most memorable women of the time were some of the women in film noir who were the femme fatale. And so women were, even though they were sexually powerful, they were also portrayed as being dangerous. You know, there was a danger about them that wasn't associated with being sexually adventurous in the early 1930s. So that, that I think, is how Hollywood was able to accommodate sexually adventurous women into the 40s. They made them lethal. See what I mean? Mm, right. They made them dangerous so that they were something to almost be afraid of. Right. And then the, 50s, wary of, the 1950s was all about being the good housewife, you know, after World mm -hmm. War II. I bet World War II had a lot to do with it somehow. It just 
probably that would like World War One. World War One. It had such a profound effect on culture and the way people thought of themselves. I mean, how do you? We're still living underneath that. The mm -hmm. the idea of the Nazis and what they did to the Jews. I mean, it's just such a huge, horrible thing to have to confront about human beings. That right. I think it probably you know was a major quake for for culture. But well, yeah, and especially for women in the 1940s during World War II, all millions of men just left. They left the country, so women were left behind here to hold down the fort. And they, for the very first time, they got jobs. They supported their family, and so they they found freedom in the 1940s that they'd never been able to experience before. As far as they knew, they didn't even know if their husbands or boyfriends were coming home. Right? They couldn't be sure of that. And so the men who were left at home, they didn't. Probably a lot of women, uh, you know, just love the one you're with, right? right? And so that probably opened up a lot of attitudes in the 1940s for women as far as career-wise and being independent, I think. I think it scared people, too, men especially, because it showed that women could run things just fine. They did all the jobs that men were doing before men went off to go, to go get killed in Europe. And I think that that's, I think, the end of that. When, the, mm -hmm. when they were kicked out of all of those jobs that they were doing. And I think there was sort of a clampdown to try and per, the, the perception maybe to put women back in their places. Isn't yeah. that why, they, why things got as conservative as they did for so long? And as much as we love film noir, and I, it's really probably one of my favorite genres of all time, it's even beyond a genre. It's just like the, the themes of film noir and everything are just so pervasive. I think that part of the seed of that was planted during World War II when men came back from the war and they wondered, can I trust this woman? You know, what has she been up to while I've been mm. away at war? <laughs> and and so that's where the film fatal thing was was, was found at its roots, I believe, part, partly, you know, because women certainly were had all of this strength and power and sexual power, sexual power and, and financial independence, and it made men uncomfortable. And, and that's sort of work really illustrated beautifully in Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life with Gloria Graham on one hand and um, uh, Deb, oh God, oh my God, Alzheimer's. What is her name? Um, you know, Mary, what's mm, her name? Shoot, I can't think either. Donna Reed on the other. Donna Reed, right, You yeah. know, that's, that's like Donna Reed's the one you want to come home to and then your film noir, Femme Fatale, is, is beautiful fucked up Gloria Graham. Um, 1931, the Academy, if you haven't, all of you listening, if you have not gone to oscars.org and looked at their, their database, they've got some really wonderful resources. They got some pictures from this fourth Academy Awards. And then they have points of interest here, which they write on the website and I'll read you those now. Um, the scientific and technical awards were presented for the first time. President Herbert Hoover, we already know he sent vice president Charles Curtis to attend the ceremony. In, in August 1930, Betty Boop premiered in the animated film Dizzy Dishes. On oh. December 2nd, 1930, that's after this year's Oscars, President Herbert Hoover gave his State of the Union address in which he asked for at least $100 million to fund a public works program to help generate jobs and stimulate the economy. In February 1931, the original Dracula, starring, starring Bela Lugosi, was released. In March 1931, the Star Spangled Banner was adopted as the national anthem of the United States. <laughs> in March 1931, Nevada legalized gambling. On May 1st, 1931, New York City's Empire State Building opened to the public. I love these factoids. We should do this. We should try to do this every week where we associate what's happening in society at large to in, 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 in parallel to the Oscars because it's really fascinating stuff. Yeah, and they did that. They uh, The Academy does that on their site. And they have, like I say, the, the digital um, database of the menus and pictures. They've got lots of interesting things if you're... 
we probably have a lot of listeners already who love old movies, from, but a lot of people, too, probably a lot of our younger viewers, look back at movies of the early 30s, especially anything made before color films, really, or especially back in the 1940s and 50s, maybe maybe regard those old movies of an, as antiquities or quaint, and but they're far from it. You know, if you get into it and you actually sit down and watch the movies instead of just think just thinking that you've seen the movies by seeing some clips, there were, there were some amazing things happening in film at the time. Hmm. Well, I think that does it. We've had a wonderful time talking with you all. We had a. We will be back again with the 1932, right? That's the next year, mm-hmm. um, and we'll try to do these as regularly as we as we as our schedules will allow. You've been listening to episode 83 of Oscar Podcast with Sasha Stone, Craig Kennedy, and Ryan Adams from AwardsDaily.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Oscar Podcast. And we'll be back next week with another episode.